Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Tamar Hajat, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my name is Jennifer Lee, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we are talking to Dr. Bradley Barth about advanced therapeutic endoscopy in pediatrics. And I think endoscopy is why a lot of us end up choosing gastroenterology. So it's really exciting to talk about some of the cool things and advanced things that we can do. Dr. Barth is the Division Director of Pediatric Gastroenterology at Children's Health in Dallas, Texas. He is also a professor of pediatrics at UT Southwestern. His clinical and research interests include therapeutic endoscopy, ERCP, recurrent and chronic pancreatitis, and endoscopic treatment of gastrointestinal bleeding and complex esophageal strictures. He has won the NASPGAN Endoscopy Prize multiple times. What is the prize? I wonder if he gets a statue that's actually like an endoscopy goat. Oh, that would be a good prize. Right? Anyway, (laughs) on to the show. On to the show. Dr. Barr, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bowel Sounds. Thank you so much for inviting me. We are going to start with what I think is a challenging question, uh, because I like to talk a lot. But for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Um, It's a really challenging question, you're right. So I would say, um, for someone who doesn't know me, I am 51 years old, married, three kids, and I love dogs, sports, music, food, adventures, and I'm an optimist. Oh, there's your puppy. <laughs> <laughs> He's just playing right there. He's a golden doodle. Yeah. Is his head under the bed? It is. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. I have a nine-year-old miniature Australian shepherd named Luna. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, we heard through the grapevine that you love sous vide. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Um, I love it. You control it with your cell phone and it gets your water bath to whatever temperature you want. And you can leave it there for anywhere from two hours to four hours without it getting overcooked. So if you have people over, you can always chat and hang out and not worry about burning. But um, I, as I move away from the sous vide, I really, really want to get a pellet smoker. I have one. So we ju- I just bought my husband a Traeger for his birthday last year. Man, what a lucky guy. Oh, man. It is the best. Maybe we should have Jen a uh, barbecue hangout sometime. I'll do it. Come over. And well, in- we're an hour away. <laughs> You're welcome to join uh, Dr. Barth. Don't worry. I will. <laughs> so, you know, let's move a little bit into our topic. So all pediatric gastroenterologists perform endoscopy. But today we're talking about advanced and interventional endoscopy. So before we, before we begin, what is it? Yeah, so advanced endoscopy is a niche of pediatric gastroenterology. We're just talking about pediatrics today. Um, in my opinion, where the physician's knowledge and expertise and skill are advanced beyond that of traditional diagnostic endoscopy and colonoscopy. So... I think that an advanced endoscopist has 
special knowledge about data and outcomes and how you approach a certain problem. And it's also really important to have advanced knowledge of all the devices that you use. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation where you want to do something, you know exactly what you want to do, but the device doesn't work or your ERB is not set right and you know, the coag's too low. Um, I think an advanced endoscopist has knowledge and expertise in using things and knowing how they work and what the best approach for a specific problem is. You know, one of the ways I got into endoscopy, um, Alan Leitner was one of my most influential clinical mentors during my training. And during my first year, I was really bad at colonoscopies. And oh, I was terrified. I find that hard to believe. Right. <laughs> I was terrified that I would finish my training and not be able to finish a colonoscopy. So I used to go and I would do every colonoscopy I could. And Alan Leitner always had the Friday morning 7.30 slot. And um, I would go and work with him because no fellow wanted to go and do that case, partly because it was 7.30 in the morning and partly because he's tough on trainees. But um, I learned so much and kind of without realizing it, I became really good at colonoscopies because I focused on it so much. And then uh, I realized that I enjoyed being in that environment in the endoscopy lab. So that's when I asked Victor if he would be my mentor and teach me advanced endoscopy. Not all centers have an advanced endoscopist. And um, I remember that at least when I was training, we had to send patients um, who needed ERCP or any advanced endoscopy procedure to the adult uh, hospital. Can you tell us a little bit more about how can somebody get an appropriate training for advanced endoscopy? Yeah, so it's tough and, and it's always changing. Um, if you want to pursue a career as an advanced endoscopist and you want to do ERCP and endoscopic ultrasound, it can be really difficult. I remember, um, you know, when I was training in Boston, Victor Fox was my mentor, and we would do ERCPs at Children's Hospital Boston. But um, that really wasn't the case in very many places back then. So when I left in 2004, there were maybe certainly less than five pediatric endoscopists doing ERCP in their children's hospital. And centers had different setups for how to get these kids taken care of. Sometimes an adult advanced endoscopist would come to the children's hospital to do the case. Sometimes the kids would be transferred to an adult facility for the case. Neither one of those situations are ideal. And you're right, you know, when I talk to people at fellows conferences or around the country about why I think it's important that we have more pediatric ERCPists, one of the main reasons is it's really time consuming and difficult for trainees and staff, um, the people who get insurance authorization, uh, you know, all of that is difficult to find anesthesiology at an adult facility for your pediatric patient. Setting that up can be really time consuming and difficult. And a lot of times that burden falls on the fellows. Um, you know, it's also a dissatisfier for the patients to be transported to an adult facility and the kids are well taken care of, but it's different. You know, when you go to the adult facility, it's different. It's a whole different environment and attitude and approach to pain control. And they're not really all that comfortable with smaller kids. Um, I think that when a pediatric patient can stay at their own facility with pediatric anesthesia and pediatric intensive care, if needed, then you're going to have a better outcome and a more satisfied patient. So um, all of those things being said, how do you get trained? Um, so when I trained, like I said, I stayed uh, at my home hospital in Boston, but even then 
we were doing maybe 30 to 40 ERCPs per year. And I got to participate in about 20 of them per year because of clinical responsibilities or research responsibilities. So I wasn't close to being finished with my training. Um, the recommendation from the ASGE last time I looked, the ASGE is the American Society for GI Endoscopy. Uh, last time I looked was 220 ERCPs before you can really consider yourself possibly independent. And um, to be independent, you're supposed to have a 90% success rate for cannulating the duct of choice, the bile duct or the pancreatic duct. And that's really hard, man. Um, people told me when I was training that at about 160 ERCPs, you kind of flip a switch and you start to understand the anatomy and the angles that you have to use to cannulate. And I think that was really on target. 160 was where it started to make sense to me. But by then, you're still not ready to be on your own. So if you look at that number of 220, there's very few pediatric centers that in your second and third year of fellowship um, can get you 220 ERCPs. So you need something else typically. Um, there's at least one dedicated training program that I know of in San Antonio where uh, it's a combined program with pediatric and an adult ERCPist who's a really good guy. And they offer a year fellowship after your pediatric GI fellowship. I know that there's programs uh, in different countries that if you pay enough, they'll let a pediatric gastroenterologist come over or an adult gastroenterologist come over and learn ERCPs on their patients. Um, mm -hmm. Not sure how legit that is. I'm, I've never visited and been to those programs, but I know it's advertised and it's out there. And then there's other opportunities like I had. So I moved to UT Southwestern and Children's Medical Center in Dallas straight out of fellowship. But one of the parts of my recruitment was that they had to protect me so that I could go to an adult facility and work on adult patients. And that worked out really well for me. I've got to say it was difficult to find an adult mentor who didn't have his own trainees already who was willing to take me on. But a guy named Kent Hamilton, really great guy. Uh, would let me go and assist with his patients. And you know, to make it worth his while, I certainly slowed him down a lot, but to make it worth his while, I would do all of the histories and physicals and um, I would write the orders and take care of the patients and pack you. It was really difficult. Though. It was different working on adult patients than pediatric patients, but I got it done and hopefully I wasn't too much of a burden on him. Other models have been that I know of have been where uh, somebody will join a faculty and have six months protected at various times during their career. So they can do six months in the children's hospital and then go and do adult endoscopy six months somewhere else. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, I wish there was an easier path for people who wanted to do it, but a lot of times it's a matter of where there's a need and what the situation is at the time when you show up. So um, it's a grind. And, and I like to tell people who are young and want to get into this field that if you're persistent and you're willing to wait, it'll be worthwhile. And it might not be during your fellowship or one year after your fellowship where you're independent and competent. But if you keep trying and you keep pushing, at some point you can get there. Anybody can learn to do it. It's just a matter of being persistent and willing to be humbled because there were a lot of times when I thought I was going to quit. It was just too hard and I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. And some of the people teaching me um, weren't all that patient and didn't really use the words that I could understand. So uh, there, there's definitely times when it's frustrating and humbling. But if you're persistent, anybody can learn how to do that. What is the percentage 
of that number would you say needs to be pediatric patients? Because you explained that the majority would probably be adult patients, but what percent of that would you say? Uh, I mean, pediatrics is a little different. You probably have to have 50% or 75% or maybe 30% yeah. less than 18. Question. I don't know if there's an established number on that. Um, but I would say that if you do 25% of 200 cases, which is what, 50? Yeah, 50 ERCPs on kids under 10, I think that's probably good enough. A lot of it okay. depends on what diseases you're treating. So, all these ERCPs are not the same. Some are really easy and some are really hard. And there's a standardized grading scale for the difficulty of ERCPs. And the things that are most common, like taking out a stone from a bile duct, those are grade one, assuming the stone's small size. And those are things that are really the same no matter what. So if you have an eight-year-old patient compared to a 16-year-old patient, it really doesn't make a difference. Coleidocal cysts are a little bit different though. So you might be dealing with a coleidocal cyst in someone who's smaller, like a three or a four-year-old um, with aberrant pancreatic and biliary anatomy. And those can be especially challenging. So that would be a higher grade and more difficult. Um, you know, we don't deal with cancer a lot and that's a big difference. So um, an 80-year-old with uh, biliary malignancy, I think, is a really challenging ERCP, whereas a 13-year-old with a stone is not typically challenging. Anastomotic strictures uh, in kids who have had liver transplants, I think those are pretty straightforward too. And as long as you can get a wire across, um, it doesn't really matter how old the patient is. It does get really, really difficult in the small kids. So those who are under probably 10 kilos, we have to use this uh, neonatal ERCP scope, which is really an awful experience. The optics are bad. Um, the, the dials don't work well. And they're really old scopes that haven't been updated since I've been in attending. So in the last 17 years, I don't think there's been any advances in this little 7.5 millimeter scope. So it's really hard to use. And the devices that you can put through it are small and not very helpful, to be honest. So you can do a biliary sphincterotomy, but really doing anything else through that scope, I have a ton of trouble with. So um, I would say that small kids under 10 kilos, maybe less than two years old are a lot more difficult. But once you get above that, very similar, as long as you're sure you understand the disease that you're treating, it doesn't really matter how old the patient is. So I think what I'm hearing is that you have to be really persistent and it sometimes takes time to get your numbers to be proficient on your own. So a follow-up question for that is, should a lot of trainees be seeking this training? So AKA, if I do this training, will I be able to find a job? I think so. Um, as a division chief, I would be really excited about any trainee who has pursued advanced endoscopy training. So I like to separate out ERCP and endoscopic ultrasound from everything else though. So if you're talking about ERCP, I still think, yes, I still think there's jobs available. And in my opinion, it serves every big center well to have at least two people who can do that. Probably no more than two. I think two is an ideal number. From my experience, when, uh, when David Trundle, who works with me at UT Southwestern and Children's Medical Center Dallas, when David finished his training, um, actually when he was even during his training, my career really took off because I now had somebody to talk about all of these cool things with and somebody who was as interested as I was. And we could bat ideas back and forth and think about research. And 
you know, two minds are better than one with difficult cases. We used to have such a great time doing that. We can't do it as much now because we're both faculty and we have to pay for our time in some way. But I do get to spend time sometimes when David's doing a difficult case and uh, I can go down and hang out and watch and sometimes offer input. Um, there's times when I get lucky and I can cannulate something when he can't, but it's a blast being able to work together. So yeah, I think that there is still a need for trained um, responsible, thoughtful ERCPists. There's definitely a need for endoscopic ultrasound docs too. And I would also make a point that you don't really have to be able to do therapeutic endoscopic ultrasound to make it valuable. So there's a lot of diagnostic cases and, and we do it uh, for a number of reasons. We do endoscopic ultrasound to look and see if there's a stone in a bile duct before we do an ERCP. And if there's not, you know, if we can rule out cholelithiasis that way, then you save the patient the risk of pancreatitis. We can do endoscopic ultrasound diagnostically to score chronic pancreatitis, and you can use it to evaluate um, abscesses in somebody with Crohn's disease. You can use it to evaluate submucosal masses, see how deep they go, and sometimes figure out what they are. And um, you can biopsy with an endoscopic ultrasound scope. And I don't think the risk for that is very high. And I have to qualify that because I don't do endoscopic ultrasound. So somebody else might want to correct me, but um, I don't think it's technically all that difficult as long as you learn how to read the ultrasounds. So there's, there's definitely a need for people to learn how to do that. And like I said before, if you're not going to pursue biliary endoscopy and pancreatic endoscopy, AKA ERCP or endoscopic ultrasound, then there will always be a need for somebody who's really good at dilating complex strictures and knows about the different dilation balloons you can use. And somebody who um, knows the data about treating GI bleeding and when we should use a bipolar probe compared to argon plasma coagulation. Those people are really valuable. Um, endoscopy, advanced endoscopy and therapeutic endoscopy can be really scary for people. And having somebody who's comfortable doing it and has experience doing it is invaluable for a program. So you kind of talked a little bit about ERCP and what the uses of it is. And I'd like to talk a little bit about certain kind of conditions or situations that we would use the ERCP for. So for example, in kids with uh, um, we're seeing more and more kids having that. Can you tell us what your approach um, for these patients are in terms of when to do, when do you decide to do the ERCP and um, how you prepare them for that and uh, what you monitor for? Yeah. So um, this has evolved over time uh, during my career. Um, I used to be really scared of any ERCP and, and it's, it's scary when you're doing something that, um, that is not widely accepted around the country. And when I started doing this, there were a lot of people who didn't think pediatric endoscopists should be doing ERCPs. Um, so I used to kind of wait and drag my heels and hope that the stone would pass, uh, but that's changed now. Um, what I've learned over time as I've become more confident and removing stones through ERCP is that the sooner we act, the better. So if a patient comes in to our hospital with right upper quadrant pain and a suspected stone in the bile duct, 
then we tend to admit them to our GI service. There's times when they end up on a surgical service and they consult us, but we have a really good working relationship with our surgeons. But we like to take them because uh, David and I like to have a little bit of control over what goes on and when. Usually, we like to do an ERCP same day if possible. So if the GGT is high and the bilirubin's high and it's early in the day, we try to add those kids on sometime in the afternoon. Um, if it's late at night, I think it's really safer to have your best staff around for an ERCP because you need a good nurse who knows how to use the devices and where to find them. Um, if you need to put in a stent, you need somebody who knows how to work uh, the wires and um, what size stents we need to have. So it's really nice to do ERCPs during the day. That being said, um, if they have stones in the duct, they probably have stones in their gallbladder too. So one thing we've leaned towards doing a lot more of lately is combined procedures with our surgeons. And there's a couple of papers that have come out recently, both from Texas. Um, one was from a surgeon at our center. Um, and the second one was uh, us along with uh, the docs down at Texas Children's describing um, same setting laparoscopy and ERCP. So ideally we'll call up a surgeon and we'll say, yeah, I have a gap at 2 PM today. Um, we can put it in our room and we'll take the patient in. And if we're feeling adventurous, we can try to do the ERCP with a patient on their back. Um, classically, we do these with a patient prone, but if you do the ERCP with a patient prone, then you've got to flip them onto their back for the laparoscopy. So um, sometimes we try to do it on their back and usually we can achieve that. And we do an ERCP and remove the stone in the bile duct. And then in the same setting, the surgeon will come in and take out the gallbladder. So ideally we do that. And I would say um, at least 25% of the uh, cases we do at our main hospital, Children's Medical Center, Dallas, are combined ERCP laparoscopic cholecystectomies. It might not be that much, but I think it's close. So that's generally our approach. For other things like pancreatic cases, which are more complicated, um, again, I think David and I both tend towards getting it done quickly rather than letting the admission drag on. Kind of depends. Usually, if an ERCP needs to be done, it's done within 24 to 48 hours regardless of whether it's weekday or weekend. That's one of the things about doing this is you kind of have to be available on the weekends to keep the patients moving. A couple of follow-up questions on that. Um, so with the combined ERCP and cholecystectomy, have you noticed a possible increase in uh, post-operative kind of risks or complications, or has it really decreased um, the exposure to anesthesia because you're combining two procedures together. And um, I guess my other question is, obviously, you kind of adjusted your approach to, to these patients based on your experience. So how are these different from kind of the adult guidelines on how to approach a patient with uh, colithiasis um, and doing an ERCP? Yeah. So uh, for your first question, I have not noticed an increase in complications. And I think both the papers that were published state that. Um, you know, David does a lot of these himself now. So if there have been complications, I'm not aware of it's possible, but I really don't think so. I think it's, it's great for the patients. One episode of anesthesia and a lot of times they go home the next day. So they might come into the hospital, um, on Tuesday morning and be home by Wednesday afternoon, which is really great for them. But overall, I think it's worth it for sure. Um, for your second question about adult guidelines, I think it's pretty similar. Um, I can say though, 
Okay. And this is strictly opinions. I think that we are appropriately active when it comes to doing ERCPs. So there's a paper that um, I participated in writing. It was written by a, a surgical fellow, a pediatric surgery fellow in Arkansas. And what he wanted to measure was length of stay and outcomes in children who had their ERCP for cholelithiasis done at their home children's hospital compared to um, another model, for instance, being transported to another facility or having uh, an adult endoscopist come to the children's facility. And what they found was that when you compared kids who stayed at their place at home with a pediatric endoscopist doing the case, the uh, stay was at least two days shorter. Um, outcomes were actually better and there were fewer stents placed. So, and also fewer MRCPs ordered, which is really interesting. I think one of the things that adult endoscopists do is try to order an MRCP because they want to be sure there's a stone there before they go through all of uh, the transports and uh, putting the child through the risk. But we're pretty careful about watching the labs and examining the patient every day. And it's a lot easier for us to do that when the patient's at our hospital. Um, with regard to stent placement, I think that an adult endoscopist who's doing a case on a child at their facility um, might be more likely to put in a biliary stent for a stone case. And, and again, this is just opinion, but they want to make sure that duct is clear and that the child doesn't reobstruct, which is great. But um, at our facility, we're able to keep the child overnight. And if it looks like they're not, their duct isn't clear, we can repeat the ERCP the next day. The thing about putting in a stent is it's not really dangerous, but anytime you put in a biliary stent, you're um, mandating that that child needs another ERCP to pull the stent later on. So I think that we shorten length of admission, we decrease the use of MRI, and we um, decrease stent placement and thus the number of procedures these kids get. So if you extrapolate that to adult standards, I would say we kind of do our own thing. Um, I think that we've learned by communicating with other pediatric ERCPs what works best for kids. And adult standards are great. And sometimes we rely on them for sure if we don't have anything better. But uh, we've kind of developed our own patterns as well. I think we talked a lot about different things we can do with an ERCP. And you mentioned how you don't perform as much endoscopic ultrasound. I have actually never ordered an endoscopic ultrasound in a pediatric patient. So for our listeners, can you describe some of the clinical scenarios um, that we may think about using that technique? Yeah. So um, you're right. I don't do endoscopic ultrasound, but I have ordered a ton of them. And whenever I order them, David has to do them. We do them oftentimes before an ERCP. So in the same setting, but it's really easy to pass the endoscopic ultrasound scope and look at the distal common bile duct and see if there's still a stone there. Because if the stones pass, you don't want to do an ERCP. It just puts the child at extra risk for pancreatitis. Um, so that's the most common reason we order them. Um, outside of that setting, patients that I follow with uh, recurrent pancreatitis or chronic pancreatitis, I order a lot of endoscopic ultrasounds on them. Um, I still think an MRCP is probably better, but if they need an endoscopy or if they need a therapeutic ERCP, we will do an endoscopic ultrasound to evaluate the rest of their pancreas during that setting. Um, Non-pancreatic problems. So uh, I did mention IBD and looking at rectal abscesses that can be done. An MRI might be a better diagnostic way to do that because those images um, are 
really high quality and um, not really operator dependent. The other thing is submucosal masses. So you can evaluate submucosal lesions that you see on endoscopy. You can also evaluate mediastinal masses. And I don't know if you'd consider this diagnostic or therapeutic, but you can put a, uh, a needle through that endoscopic ultrasound scope and you can biopsy lesions that are outside the GI tract pretty safely. One other thing that we're starting to do a lot of is endoscopic ultrasound guided liver biopsies. So in patients who um, need endoscopic evaluation for another reason, or who are gonna be sedated for another reason, then uh, we just asked David to do a liver biopsy for us. And that's transgastric. So it goes through the stomach wall, but he can watch with the ultrasound to make sure there's not a hematoma forming. Um, he gets really high quality samples. And uh, we haven't had, as far as I know, any complications from uh, doing a diagnostic endoscopic ultrasound. You mentioned a little bit about complications. What complications would you be looking out for um, after doing an ERCP or an endoscopic ultrasound, either with or without a diagnostic liver biopsy or yeah. any other type of biopsy? So that's the worst. And this is what makes us all lose sleep. Um, complications are common with ERCP. And, you know, regular endoscopy does have risks, but it's really safe. You know, diagnostic EGD and colonoscopy is really, really safe. But when you start, um, when you start advancing, you have to be prepared to deal with that. And, and it stinks. Nobody likes it. So when you dilate esophageal strictures, you know that there's a risk of perforation. And I'll be honest, if, if you don't dilate enough and if you're too cautious, you don't fix anything. So you have to find that line to where you're dilating too much and putting the patient at too high a risk of perforation versus not doing an effective dilation. And ERCP comes with the same type of risks. So if a patient has a stone in the bile duct, um, you have to find their bile duct, right? And that's the hardest part of an ERCP. And as you do that, you're always fiddling around with the pancreatic duct. And so the risk of post-ERCP pancreatitis, I think a realistic number is 10 to 15% in a patient who's never had an ERCP before. Some studies um, will say 3%. I really don't believe that. You know, um, if, if your study population includes people in who have had three or four ERCPs and have had a biliary sphincterotomy already, that makes your case really easy. Then your PEP or your post-ERCP pancreatitis rate is going to be lower. But I think realistically, 10 to 15% is a real number. And, and that's rough. Sometimes they get really sick. There are some ways to avoid that. Uh, we, we did a study using IV ibuprofen, uh, and we had a trend towards decreased rates of uh, PEP but statistically it wasn't significant. Our numbers were too small, um, but we did have less post-operative pain in those patients who got IV ibuprofen compared to placebo. Um, in the adult world, they use a lot of rectal endomethacin, and we actually do a lot of that too now in the bigger kids who are adult size. So you can try to prevent post-ERCV pancreatitis, but nothing is guaranteed. So that's a big risk. And then, you know, the thing that I think is even worse is the risk of bleeding. So, to uh, do a therapeutic biliary ERCP, you usually have to do a biliary sphincterotomy. And when you make that cut on the major papilla, there's a one to 2% risk of bleeding, no matter what. And no matter what we do, and no matter how hard we try, it's always there. And those patients can bleed immediately or they can bleed 24 hours later. Um, and you're really obligated almost always to go back in and do another ERCP to find where it's bleeding. And, 
And then you have to wash off all the blood using the side viewing scope. And that's really hard. And it's scary because they can bleed a lot and they've usually had transfusions. Um, and then we inject epinephrine and then you see a big blood vessel at the side of your sphincterotomy that, that wasn't there before. So, you know, we've used clips, we've used bipolar, um, even used hemospray to stop post sphincterotomy bleeding. So that's really frightening too. Um, there have been deaths uh, from infections with ERCP scopes, and it hasn't happened as far as I know in the pediatric population, which is great, but that's a big deal now too. So, um, endoscope reprocessing to decrease the complication of nosocomial infection has become a real hot topic. Um, so much so that uh, there's a company that's making disposable single-use duodenoscopes now. We've tried to use those and they're okay. And they don't quite feel the same. They're a little bit lighter, but I think it's a good idea. It's a good idea to have a single-use device if you can. When you give NSAIDs for ERCP, do you give it just one time before? Do you give it before and the day after? Um, does that increase the risk of bleeding? Um, and my other question is, is there a certain technique that you do to avoid kind of touching that vessel? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Um, yeah. In our experience and in the published literature, I am not aware of an increased risk of bleeding when we use NSAIDs. So the way that we do it is, is we give for a smaller child, we can give a small dose of an IV NSAID based on weight. And the problem with the endomethacin suppositories is that you never know how the medicine's distributed in that suppository. So you can't really cut it in half and think, okay, I'm giving half the dose to this smaller patient. In an adult-sized patient, we give uh, endomethacin suppository after anesthesia is induced um, and before we pass the scope or, or as soon after you pass the scope. And that seems to work to some degree. Nothing completely eliminates that risk though. With regard to... Um, a technique for performing the sphincterotomy that decreases the risk of bleeding. I wish I knew. Okay. Fair enough. You mean you can't use an endoscopic ultrasound to find the vessel? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a good idea. Right? Use a Doppler <laughs> ultrasound, find the vessel. See, oh, okay. Dr. Barth, maybe I should go back and do training. I'm just kidding. Anytime. You're welcome to come down. Nope. I already did almost, I did about 10 years of training. I am done. <laughs> So, um, you know, moving on a little bit about just endoscopy in general, you mentioned before that you trained with adult endoscopists, and there were some adult endoscopists who didn't think pediatric gastroenterologists should even be doing these techniques. So can you just take us through the history of how endoscopy has changed during your career? Yeah. It wasn't, to be honest, in 2004, it wasn't just adult endoscopists who didn't think we should do this. A lot of pediatric GI programs did not think there was a need for someone um, like me or someone to build a therapeutic endoscopy program at their center. So that certainly evolved over time. Uh, and that's been probably, I would say the, the thing I'm most happy about now is that our field is really well received by um, division chiefs and uh, leaders in pediatric GI around the world. Um, there's still adult endoscopists who don't think we should be doing this. And um, I won't name names, but they're out there and they're vocal about it. Um, over, over the course of the last, gosh, let's say 20 years since I started my fellowship, um, a lot has come and gone. You know, capsule endoscopy kind of came around in 2001 when I was starting my fellowship. And 
we used to do a lot of capsule endoscopy. And I think that it's still valuable, but I think its utility has faded a bit because it's not therapeutic. I don't think we do as many as we used to. And MRE has come along uh, and, and that gives us a lot of information about the small intestine. So that's something that I think has come and, and the enthusiasm's waned a little bit. Uh, double balloon enteroscopy and single balloon enteroscopy is another technology that's come along during my career. And I think that's really valuable um, as a therapeutic tool. I still have a lot of trouble making it very far into the small intestine. Uh, some people state that they have high success getting to the ileum. I think it's really hard. It depends on what you're treating and what you want to do. If you're trying to treat somebody with Putz Jaegers and you, know, you can make it really far, but actually using that device to resect a large polyp is really challenging too. So I certainly think there's a role for balloon enteroscopy and, and our ability to endoscopically visualize a far larger portion of the small intestine is a nice advancement over the past 20 years. Um, other things like spyglass is really cool. I love what this has changed. So there's not a ton of indications in pediatrics, but spyglass is a small uh, catheter-sized camera slash scope. It's, it's really its own scope that can go through an ERCP scope and you can put it up into a bile duct to look at the mucosa and the lining. You can evaluate potential tumors and it's got a little forcep that can go through it and you can take biopsies of a bile duct. So that's a really cool advancement that's changed. With regard to things that aren't related to technology, I think that enthusiasm about pediatric endoscopy among pediatric gastroenterologists has really moved forward as well. There are a lot of people now who are involved in the endoscopy committee and pediatric endoscopy research who are really active and want to work together and answer questions. And it's really cool that this is such a collaborative group. Um, I love the enthusiasm and the collegiality that's developed over the past 20 years. I know it's hard to predict the future, but if <laughs> yeah. you can, um, how do you see pediatric advanced endoscopy going in the next 10, 15 years? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, I mean, what I would love <laughs> to see is better devices for the smaller kids. I think that, you know, endoscopes, you guys know that you can use a diagnostic um, standard adult gastroscope on any kid above you know, two or three years old. And that's great. You can do just about anything you need to do endoscopically, but we really need help with the babies. Um, that uh, six millimeter 18 French uh, neonatal gastroscope doesn't offer much and it's really hard to use and, and the optics aren't as good. And you have to do something therapeutic through those scopes. It's really challenging. So I would love to see advancement in uh, the technology that we have, you know, a bigger channel size that allows a 2.8 millimeter device to be used would be great for the rare times that we have to treat babies with GI bleeding. And that's part of the problem is it's, it's not something that there's a huge need for and companies usually aren't excited about investing in technology that's not going to lead to a nice profit. I think that um, the development of single use endoscopes and duodenoscopes might be an opportunity for us because if there's a single use small caliber gastroscope with a 2.8 millimeter channel that um, companies make and we use it as needed. So, you know, we might only use it 20 times a year, but that could still end up being profitable for a company if we pay for a new scope every single time we need it. So, so I think that that might be something that changes over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, 
I don't know, I always think about virtual medical care. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder, you know, just like with a virtual reality system or uh, with a PlayStation, is there a way someday that I could do an ERCP on someone in Columbus? You know, um, maybe the problem with that is dealing with the complication that you cause. So we have to improve a lot of things before we can start doing remote cases. But I certainly think that at some point in the future, we'll be able to do that. And there'll be a smaller number of endoscopists working with a robotic type device doing procedures from a distance. I love science fiction. Like the Da Vinci for surgeons. Exactly. Just ask a little bit more about the single use scopes. Are they just a one-time use it and discard? There's a couple of different options. One is a disposable cap that goes on the tip of a certain brand of duodenoscope. So most of the scope you keep and use and you throw away the tip, which is considered to be the infection risk. But no, the other is a single use. So we've used it a handful of times and it's pretty crazy. When you finish the case, you open up your trash can and toss it. Wow. Seems expensive to me. Yeah. (laughs) And a little different. And just a last follow-up on kind of that question. Is uh, there any other procedures that the adults do that, that you think that pediatric advanced endoscopists will start doing? So I think we could be better at resecting difficult polyps. I know that we don't deal with a lot of colon cancer, but um, when I go to adult therapeutic endoscopy meetings, They spend a lot of time focusing on endoscopic mucosal resection and endoscopic submucosal dissection. Endoscopic mucosal resection actually isn't that difficult. So um, we all do that to some degree, even when we take a biopsy, we're taking a part of the mucosa. And there's ways to safely resect a larger portion of mucosa just by applying a band like you would with a variceal band ligator onto a lesion that you want to resect. And you can apply that band and then you get the you know the mushroom or the bubble that pops up and that's really mucosa and then you can just snare that off and you have a nice large sample i think the indications for that in pediatrics are still pretty rare because we don't deal with a lot of dysplasias or cancer um, i do think though that endoscopic resection of broad-based polyps we will probably start doing more with more practice and more emphasis and training when it comes to injecting uh, into these submucosal areas and lifting a lesion off and before resecting it. Um, one of the problems with that is those patients tend to bleed a lot, the more aggressive you are with removing those lesions. So you have to be prepared to go back and deal with complications either um, soon after or the next day. So as there are more experienced and trained pediatric endoscopists, I think that um, more aggressive colonoscopic techniques might start to be employed. There's some folks who have trained in a combined adult pediatric program or an essentially adult program who are pediatric endoscopists who are pretty skilled at that. Uh, One thing you didn't mention in the future is the use of artificial intelligence. And I think, was it a month ago that the FDA approved the real-time use of AI to help identify polyps? Is that something that you know that you've seen or have used? Yeah, I've seen talks on that before. I've never used it. Uh, the The polyps that we deal with in pediatrics, which typically juvenile polyps or Putz-Jaeger polyps, in my opinion, are pretty easy to see. And I'm not convinced that we need a lot of help with that. Surely we could always get better at what we do. But when it comes to detecting small adenomas in the adult population, I think that that's where that technology will be more useful. 
So looking back on your career thus far, what has been the most valuable advice that you've received and what advice would you give to our listeners? Um, there's a couple of things that come to mind. So, so the thing that I think about most, and I don't know, I don't know why this stuck with me. It was my high school basketball coach, actually. And he would always tell me, don't get too high on the highs and don't get too low on the lows. It's better to stay even keeled. And that does apply in a lot of ways to endoscopy. You know, with ERCP, especially, there are times when you just think you're the greatest because you've done a quick ERCP to remove gallstones um, and the patient does well and the surgeons thank you because they don't have to do a common pile duct exploration. And then the next case you do, you can fail and you can try for two or three hours and not get in the duct and your patient gets pancreatitis and in the hospital for a week and you feel terrible. So don't get too high on the high or too low on the lows is one. And then specifically for endoscopy, and I can't remember who told me this. I wish I could. Um, it was either one of the adult endoscopists who trained me, or it might've been an anesthesiologist who I worked with back when I was junior faculty. And they told me that the enemy of good is perfect. And that, that's an old quote uh, from, I believe the 1700s, but so true when it comes to advanced endoscopy and things like esophageal stent placement, biliary stent placement. If it's good, it's good enough. And if you try to do it better, you might mess yourself up. So the enemy of good is perfect. Dr. Barth, it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast. It's um, been great being here. Thank you. We learned a lot about advanced endoscopy. Um, any final words for our listeners? Yeah. Uh, final words. I would say that anybody can be an advanced endoscopist. Um, as long as you know about your patient, you know exactly what you're doing, you have a good plan, and you know how to use the tools that you need to use to complete a procedure, then you can do this. You have to be careful, and, and it's really, really good to be cautious, and it's always better not to hurt someone than to hurt someone. But with an appropriate amount of caution and good planning and knowing the data, anybody can have a really great career as an advanced endoscopist. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, know your limitations, but just go out there and do what you love. You bet. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Barth, thank you so much. Tomorrow, sure. you're going to go back and do a fellowship now? Advanced endoscopy? <laughs> I actually considered it. Did you? Or, yeah. Still maybe considering it a little bit, but I don't know. Never too still late. Have, yeah, I know. I know. I was like, look, listening to you, I was like, yeah, maybe it's never too late. <laughs> so, you should. Go for it. Yeah. What a fantastic time talking to Dr. Barth. We want to thank him for taking the time to sit down with us. And we really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening.